0: Hello there. This is Christopher Milton, and you're listening to Past Perfect, CEU Medieval Radio Show in Medieval and Early Modern History and Culture in association with Civil Radio FM98. Joining us today is Dr. Verena Krebs. Dr. Krebs is a postdoctoral research fellow of the Martin Buber Society of Fellows in the Humanities, currently at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, Dr. Krebs, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Today. Well,
0: it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. So, um, I met you at this past news conference and uh, I wanted to talk to you and uh, have you on our show because uh, a lot of your research is focused primarily on um, medieval Ethiopia. And uh, I think for most people um, in their minds, the conjuring up the Middle Ages usually you think of Western Europe, primarily France and England. Uh, Talk, talking about medieval Ethiopia is uh, a, a little bit, uh, you know, off uh, the radar, I think, for most folks. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, um, interest in medieval Europe in Ethiopia,
1: please? Yes, of course, of course. Um, no, it's actually, I mean, I'm quite aware that our conception of what constitutes medieval world normally does not include Ethiopia, or most of the Eastern Christianities, for that matter. and Well, I mean, if I've looked at my research, I see that this is very much actually not the case. Um, In a big research project that I recently finished, I looked at Ethiopian contacts with Western Christianity in the late Middle Ages, so the uh, 15th and 16th century, um, and it's just, uh, I mean, there were at least 37 diplomatic encounters between Ethiopia and various courts of uh, Western Christianity, that's quite a number over a span of just 150 years. Um, so you have quite a frantic exchange between this, uh, Christian kingdom in the East African highlands, uh, and really places all over Western Europe. Um, you have Ethiopian pilgrims, um, going to see the pilgrimage sites of Western Europe. They travel as far as Santiago de Compostela, uh, they go to uh, Constance, partake in the Council of Constance, uh, which is quite surprising. And they go to Paris. Um, and they do a whole number of things, uh, the least of which is uh, importing objects from Western Europe back to Ethiopia. So, I mean, this really, for the contemporaries I studied, um, Ethiopia was very much part of the same world as late medieval Europe.
0: Why do you suppose that uh um this is still relatively unknown in the modern historiography? Is it a linguistic issue or um uh, just a lack of focus?
1: I think it's it's a case of a field that is sort of claimed by a number of small specialties in um in academia, and uh as a result falls through the cracks basically. So for Ethiopian studies you have First of all, you have a very, very old tradition of study. In the 16th century, you have um, scholars as far north as Germany looking into Ethiopia. Um, You have a first uh, chair for Ethiopian studies uh, in the late 17th century in Germany. Um, And uh, there has been, it's been part of basically Semitic studies for a very long time. Um, Also, of course, uh, in the field of African history and African art history, Ethiopia, you would suppose would be a subject that is studied, but it's <laughs> for the very same reason that the Semitists study it. Africanists normally don't look at Ethiopia because they perceive it as something different. It's a culture that has a very ancient writing system. It's a Christian culture in the highlands. Um So it's a bit of an odd one out. Um, so you do have a very long history of philological study of Ethiopia, but when it comes to the history, uh, really not so much. Um, and it, I think it's really quite due to um, it, it being part of several fields and at the same time basically losing out.
0: Oh, that's a shame. It, it sounds uh, absolutely interesting, though, and uh, would you mind um, telling us a little bit about um something of the background of Christianity in Ethiopia. I mean, we have this uh, letter in the Middle Ages uh, from this this from the, uh, King Prester John, which was circulated very widely, uh, it sounds like, and it, this is somehow connected uh, to the Kingdom of Ethiopia.
1: That's, uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons, I think, why in uh, the academic study, um, basically, uh, oh, sorry, can I start again? Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um can you repeat the question? Sorry.
0: <laughs> well um Of course I can. The, the question was a sort of a twofold question. Um mm-hmm. uh on one hand we have um we have this uh, the, the development of this Christian kingdom in the Horn of Africa and uh a very long uh history of Christianity there. And on the other hand I I have to ask um, is this somehow related to the myth of preface? The circulation of uh, prester John uh, in Europe.
1: Yes, so Ethiopia um, is one of the oldest Christian realms in the world. You already have um, the conversion of the Ethiopian ruler Ezana in the early uh, fourth century, which would make Ethiopia basically the second or uh, oldest Christian um, kingdom in the world after the Armenians, um, and. In the Ethiopian highlands, you do find most of the rulers, uh, the rulership changes quite a number of times, but you do have a very strong focus on Christianity. Um, In the 13th century, you have the emergence of um, a very powerful Ethiopian dynasty called the Solomonic dynasty. And they basically trace trace their roots back to uh, Menelik, the son that the Queen of Sheba had with uh, King Solomon. Um, and a huge factor of their identity is not just that Menelik was the heir of Solomon, but also that he transferred the Ark of the Covenant to Ethiopia, uh, where it was then, uh, the foundation of a Christian, uh, kingdom, um, which lasted through time. Um, so. Christianity is so, for the Ethiopian Highlands at least, it's such an important factor. Um, And of course, I think that uh, also is part of the interest that uh, medieval Europe had in Ethiopia. Um, You can see that Ethiopia has been part of, well, it's been present uh, in Europe for a very, very long time, from a very early age. Um, You get very early travel accounts um of Saxon pilgrims to the Holy Land uh, and they state that they have met Ethiopians, they've met Issini or Abyssini. Um in uh actually uh, in the writings of Marco Polo you have the Abashe or Abasia, which is the realm of uh well it's the Highland kingdom of Ethiopia. It's a Christian ruler that uh is engaged in a conflict with Muslim Sultanates on the Horn of Africa. And you only have from the, uh, 1330s, uh, you have this de facto Christian realm in the highlands of East Africa, um, transposed in your, uh, with, or conflated with, uh, with the realm of Christus John Um, so all of a sudden the interest shifts from this Christian people that were on the fringes of the Western Christian perception. Uh, to this imagined realm that European contemporaries supposed to know so much about. Um, and it's conflated with the Nigus, so the Ethiopian ruler. Um, and that, of course, uh, causes a whole new wave of interest in Ethiopia, uh, in Europe.
0: Could you tell us uh, just a little bit about the history of uh, this um, mythical letter from Prester, John, and its reception in Europe, if you don't mind?
1: So the letter of Prestigeon is a bit of a medieval mystery, uh, uh, if one may say so. Mm-hmm. It appears uh, quite early in the twelfth um, century. Uh, it's uh, probably a fake. I'm not a specialist for uh, the letter of Prestigeon and its reception in Europe, but it's, it, has, it has a huge impact on um, high medieval uh, society because um, all of a sudden, well. Ah, oh, crap, that's a bad question. Um, I'm not a specialist for Professor John's letter, sorry. <laughs>
0: oh, okay. I'm
1: no, I mean, I can, I can, uh, it, it's really, it's a, a very entangled field of study. Yes, uh, I okay. can, I uh, only look at it from the uh, Ethiopian point of view, basically. Um.
0: No worries. Um, if you want uh, I can, I can move on to another question.
1: No, I can, I can, I can say that. Okay, um so in the twelfth century um you have a letter of unknown origin and it's directed at several very important rulers um in uh Western Europe and it shows well it depicts a ruler that is uh sovereign over a country of untold riches and he's a Christian and lives behind the country of the Muslims. And he is offering a military alliance uh, to various rulers of Western Christianity. And so it doesn't take a great leap of the imagination to think that this would, of course, be a myth that's... Or this would be a letter that gives birth to a myth that, to a certain extent, really transforms, I think, the way very many rulers in Western Europe approach the wider world. You have, uh, subsequently a lot of, um, uh, a lot of missions, basically rene- reconnaissance, uh, missions dispatched to Asia where, uh, pap- papal envoys look for Prestigeon. And in the, uh, early 14th century, specifically around the date 1330, you have, um, a European, uh, writer, Jordanus, for the first time moved um The Empire of Prestigeon from Asia, where one had been looking for Prestigeon for this mythical ruler for quite a while, uh, to Africa. Um So it's all of a sudden this interest, this hunt for this mythical ruler who could join Western Christianity in the fight against the Muslim shifts. And it shifts actually to a real realm that is de facto Christian, that is in the highlands of East Africa. And it is a realm, at the same time, uh that is quite powerful in its own right. So uh in Europe, the imagination runs off about what Prestigeon is, where he is, what he can do. Um And I don't know, by coincidence or uh, a bit of fate, at the same time that the European imagination is running off about who Prestigeon is and where he is and how you can reach him, Ethiopian ambassadors start arriving in Western Europe. So you can imagine quite the welcome they enjoyed there.
0: Right. Uh, where are they arriving?
1: So we have the first embassy dispatched from the Ethiopian uh, negus uh, ruler Dawit to Venice. Um, and it arrives there in 14- 1402. Um, and receives quite the ecstatic welcome. Um, the Ethiopians bring uh, a lot of, a, a huge variety of curious gifts amongst them, a hide of a zebra and a monkey and, uh, pearls. Um, and, uh, the Venetians, uh, the Venetian Senate, um, wants to reciprocate, um, this, uh, delegation, wants to please, uh, this Prestigon um, and thus, uh, gives a thousand ducats to, uh, buy, uh, adequate, uh, gifts. Um, that are then subsequently sent back to uh, to Ethiopia. Where they do in fact arrive, um, in 1403 we have an Ethiopian text that describes the arrival of this Ethiopian ambassador that had gone to Venice and had come back. And he brings all sorts of stuff. He brings icons, he brings relics, he brings trivial things like silverware uh, glasses. Well, not trivial, in the Ethiopian context rather, special and foreign objects, namely uh, uh, colourful glass, uh, riding boots, uh, wear that is special for rain, um, embroidered uh, ecclesiastical garments, and that is received with true... Uh, with a lot of uh, fare in Ethiopia. Um, and interestingly enough, you find a lot of Ethiopian uh, Uh, dispatches of ambassadors towards different realms of Western Christianity after that, you find some nearly 19 Ethiopian ambassadors sent out to, um, not again Venice, interestingly enough, but they're sent out to Rome, they're sent out to Paris and Constance, Um, they're sent out to Aragon, so they go to Valencia and later on they go to Naples. Um, So for a period of 50 years, you have an immense interest of Ethiopians in establishing diplomatic relations with Western Europe.
0: We definitely have to hear more about that, but for the moment we'll be going on a very short break. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back, this is Christopher Amolte, joining us today is Dr. Verena Friends. Um and uh, we've had a very interesting talk in the first uh, uh, part of this uh, show, and I wanted to uh, go back to um, what you were talking about uh, before the break, um, particularly, um, uh, you know, this the, the, the dueling uh, mindset and uh, sort of the... I get the impression that... that between the Europeans and the Ethiopians, there's something that cross-purposes with each other.
1: Yeah, that, that's indeed true. So, as I um, as I said earlier on, uh, in in Europe, um, from the 14th century onwards, you find uh, the Ethiopian Negus being conflated with Prestigeon, and that shapes the Western Christian outlook on Ethiopian Christianity quite a bit. And I mean, it's also, bit, it's quite understandable because at the same time that we find, uh, this European, and it's very, it, it, this is a homemade European myth and this is a homemade European conflation. Um, at the same time, we find echoes and distorted news that carry, get carried from East Africa with the Northern East Africa, um, to Europe. Namely, in uh, 1448, we have the Grand Master of Rhodes writing to the King of France. He says, oh, I've, um, I've met some Ethiopian monks, and they just told me about the great defeat that their Christian ruler has dealt to, uh, the Mum- uh, to, the, to the Muslims. And uh, he also says, well, and at the same time, you know that the Mamluk Sultan of Cairo has to pay tribute to the Ethiopian ruler. So this really is our prestige on. And if you look closely enough, these distorted news do have some background in actual Ethiopian geopolitics of the age. Um, so there were several skirmishes between the Ethiopian Christian Empire and the surrounding Muslim sultanates. And yes, the Ethiopian ruler at that time, Zahra Yaakov, he did win. Um, but it was very much an internal politic kind of thing. It was not a crusade. But these news get carried, and it's a bit like, you know, like Silent Whispers game. Uh, By the time they reach the King of France, it's, yes, Prester John is on a crusade, and he's defeating the Muslims.
0: When, in in reality, totally, um, it sounds like it was a totally different situation.
1: Yes, yes. So, but, I mean, all of this gives rise to this complete and utter European fascination with Ethiopian Christianity and the hope for um, military alliances. So when these Ethiopian ambassadors start arriving in Western Europe, they always get questioned first and foremost whether their ruler would be willing to enter into a crusade um, with the Western Christians. Um, this is particularly the case after the fall of uh, Constantinople um, when you we have several European uh, ambassadors in that case uh from the uh, from Aragon um being sent out to Ethiopia explicitly to say hey Constantinople has fallen everything is really terrible we hear you're winning against the muslims could you please send us reinforcements could you please block the nile because everybody including uh the mamluk sultans at that point seems to be at least not completely disinclined to believe that the ethiopians have control of the nile so the European Christians ask Ethiopian Christians, could you block the Nile, and then we can go and embark on a big crusade against the Muslims of Egypt and the Middle East.
0: So, um, I, have to, I have to ask you a question um, about something that you mentioned uh, earlier. Um, could you tell us a little bit why the Ethiopians are interested in sending embassies? Um, to Venice, to Rome and to Constance So what is the interest on the part of the Ethiopians uh, in sending these ambassadors?
1: Well, it's, it's an interest that is completely and starkly at odds with Western interests in Ethiopia. The Ethiopians are not sending uh, delegations to Western Europe in order to promote military alliances or warfare or ask for weapons. And it doesn't ever appear in the sources at all. Or if anything, when European powers question Ethiopian ambassadors about um, a possible crusade, the Ethiopians try to play it off, and the Ethiopian ambassadors say, oh, we can't the really answer just now. But by the way, could you please maybe send us some artisans and artists? And do you have some relics that you could spare and send to Ethiopia? And that very much is the recurring theme. Um, that seems to be the main, the pivotal interest of the Ethiopian rulers in establishing diplomatic contacts with Western Christianity, um, because in every single um, in every single mission uh, to the various courts of uh, Western Europe, they ask for artisans and specifically painters. It's really it's always stressed as we want painters and uh, art or objects of religious material culture in that case and relics itself and i do think that actually this is the reason why from let's say the mid mid-late 15th century this diplomatic contact between ethiopia and western europe dwindles because then um the interests of both sides are completely and starkly at odds western european courts after the um fall of uh, uh, constantinople really it's it's all about potentially uh entering into a military alliance. From the Ethiopian side not very much has come of uh these de- um of the embassies asking for art and artisans. Um so we can really notice that from 1450 onwards Ethiopian rulers stop dispatching diplomatic uh delegations to Western Europe. Um and when individual European delegates reach the Ethiopian highlands, uh they don't answer. It's really, it's after 50 years from the early 15th century to the mid 15th century of frantic exchange and Ethiopia being the pivotal, uh, side in initiating and maintaining these contacts, Ethiopians just stop. And then if you look at material culture finds from Ethiopia, it gets really quite interesting because you see at the same time that the diplomatic outreach stops, you do find objects that have originated in Western Europe, that have come to Ethiopia in the late 15th and early 16th century. So it does seem like the diplomatic outreach was stopped because the interests just did not meet. Um, and the Ethiopians instead substituted this for a more direct uh, acquisition of the desired objects, uh, objects, religious material culture and relics. Um, from Europe.
0: Now, you, said, you mentioned that they, there was a particular interest in painters, but uh, mm-hmm. was there also a particular interest in relics of certain saints, or um, would any relic do? Right? It seems,
1: I mean, it seems that really any relic would do. Um, for the 1402 or 03 embassy to Venice, we have this Ethiopian report on. Um, uh, on the stuff that was brought back from Venice. And it contains a crystal skull um, that is encased in a reliquary. It encains, supposedly, the body of one of the uh, infants killed by Herod, Um, and several other things. It's uh, in the Ethiopian text described as pleasing things. So it really seems very vague. Um, And, I mean, Ethiopian Christianity is quite distinct from Latin Christian Christianity. And the Ethiopians, furthermore, have no interest in a church union or uh, changing their faith to accommodate uh, Latin Christian uh, understandings of how to be a proper Christian. I mean, they're proudly one of the oldest Christian realms in the world um, and have their own liturgy and traditions and whatnot. So I think it's very much about transposing something from abroad that is at the same time obviously Christian, and using it for your own specific needs in this entirely different Ethiopian Christian context in the Highlands. Because the Ethiopian emperors then put these objects that they have acquired in uh, very important monasteries, to, to show the world that they successfully can acquire things from abroad, that they have power and might. Um, so it's really not about specific Latin Christian science, although I think there is a certain curiosity for that as well, but it's not really it. So, for example, we have finally in the, uh, in 1520s, we have, uh, the first, very first Latin Christian, um, ambassadorial party that comes to Ethiopia. And the first thing that happens to them is that their, uh, priest, the priest that comes with them, Francisco Alvarez, is brought to the Ethiopian ruler, and his nobles, and his clerics, and they quiz him about the Western brand of Christianity. And this poor priest, who's very much, uh, hes I mean, he's not a bishop or any man of great learning, as he says himself in his travelogue later on, and they just pose all all of these questions and try to eke out, you know, what is Western Christianity about? Oh, oh, okay, that's actually, that's weird. That is strange. They nod their heads and say, oh, we do it differently. Um, so it is, I think to a certain extent, it's, it's based on, on curiosity and, and seeing what is beyond the world, not really wanting to be part of it, but, uh, to, to know that you're part of the broader Christian Mediterranean without having to become a fixed part of a less Latin Christian, uh, faith union or something.
0: Well, it's fascinating to think about things from the perspective of the, uh, the Ethiopians. and uh, I also uh, have to ask, um, you mentioned that there were um, certain objects of art that made, it, that made their way from, from Western Europe to Ethiopia. Um, are these uh, religious pieces, or are they more um, secular, uh, mundane, everyday sorts of pieces?
1: Well, I mean, in this case, the perspective would once be, once again, be very interesting because what Ethiopian nobles um, import to Ethiopia are a lot of it is uh, mass-produced Cretan uh, icons. You know, the Virgin Mary with the child on her arm, the Madre della Consolazione, um, mass-produced in Crete uh, in the late 15th century, and a lot of them get shipped back to Ethiopia, where they're venerated as having been painted by St. Luke mm. and where they have this immense uh, myth attached to them. But what we also find, very surprisingly, is a lot of Flemish and even German uh, panel paintings that uh, well, I mean, they were imported or imported from um, northern or central northern Europe um, and brought back to Ethiopia where they were also uh part of the estate of several dowager uh, empresses, um, and were venerated as very special objects. So these are religious, although of a very different quality uh, than one would assume what Ethiopian emperors or their families would import from Western Europe. Um, But we also, and most surprisingly, find uh, enamels, so painted enamels. um, that were made in northern italy or uh, in limoges in france um in the early 16th century uh and these were as it seems commissioned by members of the ethiopian court we find uh we find ge'ez writing on them so that's the ancient church language of ethiopia um, and it's a very particular kind of writing and if you look at these enamels that were produced in uh in limoges for example you see that whoever wrote these characters, this Ethiopic script, really didn't know how to write it. There's little little mistakes in it. It basically, the name of Jesus Christ is misspelled. But that doesn't harm the sanctity of the object. They're subsequently transferred back to Ethiopia, where they're put into the very most important monasteries. Um And the most amazing object, actually, is the only... Sort of quote unquote uh, secular piece of religious material culture or material culture we find um, it's a depiction of two rulers in Renaissance regalia. It could be it could be Charles IV. It could be any uh, it could be any Western European ruler depicted in pomp uh, as an emperor. And so we have uh, two rulers sitting on two Renaissance thrones. And above them is a starry, a starry blue sky, and a phrase in Ge'ez, in Ethiopic written. And it says, this is the ruler Na'od, and this is the ruler Nibna Dengel. And in my research, I was was able to trace back, um basically, you know, these are two known rulers. Are very, these are very important rulers for the late 15th and early 16th century in Ethiopia. And I was able to find an Ethiopic text that describes that the mother of Lubnadengo, the wife of Naot, so this father son pair that was depicted, um, that the mother had ordered this from the Ferengi, so from the foreigners, from the Europeans, uh, in order to um, secure the succession and le- legitimize the succession of her son to the throne, which he did subsequently.
0: Fascinating. This is such a fascinating. Story and uh, just one quick question before mm-hmm. we go to break again. Um, do a lot of these uh, pieces that were um, that that were uh, imported to Ethiopia do they still survive in Ethiopia?
1: There's quite a number of them that do survive, and I mean that was the fun part of my research. I mean if you're doing research in medieval Ethiopia, you're not really going to archives. Your archives are basically. Monasteries and churches in the Ethiopian highlands. You drive around with a Jeep and you inquire the monks, you inquire from the monks whether they might have something that's old in their possession. And sometimes you end up with a 19th century scribble, and sometimes they bring out the most astounding Limoges produced (laughs) enamel um, that is 500 years old. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of These objects still remain in situ, and not in archives or uh, museums, but actually in the churches. Some of them have also been brought back into European collections, Um, and some of them have recently been gifted back to Ethiopia, to the uh, museum at the Institute of Ethiopian Studies in Addis Ababa, by European collectors who wanted to repatriate them, basically.
0: Interesting story. we will have to go out and break for a moment to take that moment there. Please enjoy the music. Welcome back. This is Past Perfect, and uh, I'm your host, Christopher Milker. And joining us today is Dr. Durin and Travis, uh, Thank you very much for being part of our show today. Thank you. And um I wanted to um talk in this section um, so about Ethiopia and the African Horn, but uh, moving away uh somewhat from this, you know, European versus uh Ethiopian. Particularly um, about um, religious interactions uh, between Muslims, Jews, and uh, Christians, uh, um, as is I understand, you're part of the project that's looking into this as a uh, broader phenomenon.
1: Yes, well, there's actually two different projects. One um, one is a project on royal women as political and cultural agents uh, in the Horn of Africa and it looks as uh, it looks at uh well as it says royal women um both muslim christian and jewish as power players um in ethiopian history between the 14th and 17th century um and then there's a second project we i was part of um a recently successful erc grant uh called Jews East, um, and it deals with uh, Jews and Christians and the East, strategies of interaction between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean, and it's very much about looking at, uh, at exchange of texts uh, and, and relations between Jews and Christians, not in the Western world, but uh, in the Middle East, in Central Asia, in the Caucasus, and in South Indi- India, and of course in Ethiopia. And there, uh, I'm joined by, uh, so I'm a historian and an art historian. And we also have, uh, an archaeologist and a, philo- uh, a philologist also working on this very new project, um, that will hopefully shed some more light on how Jews and Christians in Ethiopia interacted, um, uh, in, uh, yeah, in the Middle Ages.
0: Oh, definitely. Definitely an interesting subject. Uh, Was there a significant Jewish population uh, in Ethiopia during the Middle Ages?
1: So you did have, we know that there is a, there's the Beta Israel, um, nowadays not so much in Ethiopia anymore, because most of these so-called Ethiopian Jews were uh, lifted to Israel um, in the uh, 1980s and 90s. Um, but we do have a significant uh, Ethi- uh, Jewish population in Ethiopia uh, from a very early age. Um, and, uh, there, there is a, a Jewish kingdom that is sometimes under the sovereignty, sometimes not under the sovereignty of the, uh, Ethiopian Christian Solomonic dynasty. Um, and they're living in the Simeon Mountains. That's one of the very, uh, It's a very mountainous region, up to 4,000 meters above sea level, um, just north of the modern-day city of Gondar. And uh, the most fascinating thing about this, actually, is that in this region we do not historically only find uh, Ethiopian Jews, but we also find that these Jews that were living in Ethiopia had a monastic tradition, uh, which was continued until the 1990s so there were Jewish monasteries uh, from the 15th century onwards um, for 400 years, uh, which is uh, completely unique, of course, uh, if one looks into uh, Judaism, because uh, Jews normally do not have monastic traditions.
0: Right. I, I wanted to ask about that. That, that seems particularly singular, and uh, is it um as far as the formation of these monasteries, are they, are, are, they sort of, are they imitating the Christian monasteries or is this something that developed all entirely on its own?
1: It's, it's a very contested, um, and an under-researched field. Um, so we do know that in the 14th century, there was a Christian renegade, uh, renegade monk called, uh, Cosmos and, uh, he was, uh, fleeing from uh, the powers of the Christian kingdom he fled to the Simeon Mountains uh, and found asylum with a group of Ayud so Jews uh, who had established a small principality there um, and they appreciated him for his outstanding education or so the local myth goes uh, and uh, joined together in the rebellion against the Christian Emperor David so against the Solomonic uh, Christian Empire of the Ethiopian Highlands, um, and Cosmos, so this Christian monk who found refuge with the Jews, um, left a messianic legacy, and also, not much later, we do find a monastic tradition that is not just traced back to him, but uh, it really seems that there was a certain imitation of um, the, the Christian monastic tradition that we find all across the Ethiopian Highlands. But uh, by Jewish students and Jewish uh, scholars and the interesting thing is here that we know these monasteries exist and that they have existed for a very long time Um, up to this day actually nowadays there is one one living Ethiopian Jewish monk here in Israel Um, he's in his late 30s from what I hear I have not yet met him Um, so we have this amazing legacy and there's nearly no scholarship being conducted on it. So, hopefully, uh, in December, uh, my colleague, Bar Kribus, uh, who's an archaeologist, and I will go to the Simeon region of Ethiopia, and we'll have a look around and, and see what kind of traces we can find of these monasteries, what was in them, what texts did these Jewish scholars that lived <laughs> like monks have, uh, what material culture can we find, um, it's, it's really, it's a, it's sort of thrilling, but also a tiny bit scary to think that there's a whole field of such a unique and, and, and interesting, um, research, uh, where you're really sort of the first one on the ground. And it's even trying to pin down where we can find these Jewish monasteries in Ethiopia so far is a bit of a challenge, but, uh, well, we'll see. Uh, by good fortune, uh, being located now in uh, Israel, uh, is quite helpful for this project, because, um, as I said, most of the Ethiopian Jews were um, brought to Israel um, prior to 2000, and um, so we can start with surveying and interviewing um, people, Ethiopian Jews, who received their education in uh, a Jewish monastery in Ethiopia, and hopefully take it from there and look um, how old the remains of these uh, sites are that we will hopefully find back in Ethiopia.
0: It, it sounds like in order to undertake this project, you're really approaching it from all angles, the uh, uh if you will. And uh, I'd imagine, you know, depending on the source survival, that that may be exactly the only way to go about doing it, Um It's very exciting.
1: This is the nice thing about working in a field like Ethiopian studies and particularly Ethiopian history. It's, I mean, at one point, at some, to a certain extent, there is such a rich history of scholarship on Ethiopia. But when it comes to uh, historiography, there is just so little and there's so many, so exciting topics where as a young researcher, you can really do field work, go out into the field and Possibly, God willing, come up with uh, some amazing finds. Um, so we'll we'll really have to see how that works out. But I'm I'm very positive, very excited, and I think with having a historian, an archaeologist, and a philologist on board, um, that that should really cover all our bases.
0: I definitely look forward to this. Uh, I also have to ask a bit about um, the the Muslim presence in Ethiopia. Was there a lot of interactions? the the Muslim populace and the Jews and Christians living there.
1: Um, Yes. I mean, you still, for Ethiopia, you still have uh, a most amazing history between Christians and and Muslims that dates back to, well, at least a thousand years. Um, The prophet himself said that uh, the Ethiopians are exempt from the jihad because the very first Muslim uh, congregation sought refuge in Ethiopia in the 6th century. Uh, or in the seventh century, sorry. Um, and, uh, so you do look back on a rich history of, of intermarriage on the highest level. You have Ethiopian, uh, rulers marrying, uh, Muslim princesses. Um, you have a rich history of interaction that is mostly not based on, uh, aggression. Um, you do have a lot of exchange, and you do have, coming back to this women's project, you seem to have an underlying cultural factor where this society that has so far been narrated as very patriarchal um, enables both Muslim, or enabled both Muslim, Christian, and Jewish women to act as uh, amazing political and cultural agents in their own right. Um,
0: For me, I'm always happy to talk about uh, uh, Queen's and princesses of, the vet, of any kind of variety. Um, but uh, for, the, for the power and the agency of, of the Queen's, I, I also have to ask, is it primarily known from uh, chronicles and written documents, or um, charters they issued, or is it more from things like material culture?
1: So this is the interesting thing. If you read the Ethiopian Royal Chronicles, it's very much a history of kings' conquests and wars, and it's very male. Um, And if you then look at uh, foreign accounts, for example, European travelers going to Ethiopia, they remark time and time again about the influence of these uh, consorts, the crowned Itigas, so the uh, crowned Ethiopian empresses. Um, so, for example, Seb who was the wife of a very important uh, Ethiopian ruler, um, uh, basically was in charge of negotiating for peace and hostages uh, with her Muslim counterpart uh, Bati del Vambara, who was the uh, wife of the Sultan uh, of Adal. And so both of these uh, widows, because by that point they are both widows. Negotiate the outcome of the war that their, uh, respective spouses had fought against each other. Um, and that's quite the amazing thing. And it is not very much reflected in Ethiopian sources. Um, but we do find it in, uh, in, in uh, Arabic sources. Um, and we also find in material culture evidence that, uh, A lot of it was donated by uh, female nobles. Um, We have local monastic chronicles, so chronicles um, about a certain region that lists everything important in the respective monasteries, that uh, say how important this and this daughter of an emperor was, and how she gave some 28 kilos of gold to purchase icons, and this is where I come back to the Byzantine icons that, or post-Byzantine icons, that were brought back to Ethiopia in the 15th century. So there seems to be an amazing breadth of possibilities for what an Ethiopian noblewoman, um, both Christian or Muslim, could do.
0: Was there ever, um, in, in, in the region of the African Horn, was there ever a queen who ruled in her own right?
1: well you do have i mean this is the the great question of who actually has the power i would say yes and on in several different cases so you do have in the ethiopian royal chronicles you do um get mentioned of uh, you get mentions of what this and this uh emperor did but if you look back at it you see that the emperor is 2 years old so he's not really doing all that much and if you then look who's part of his um this royal council, you see that it's the dowager empress, it's the sisters, the aunties. So you do have a crown council, council more or less uh, uh, made up entirely of royal women who rule for this infant um, and donate and endow monasteries and send out even their own diplomatic dispatches to Western Christianity. And, uh, you also have the story of Gaewa, who was, um, the sister of a sultan in a small sultanate in what is now close to Djibouti, Eritrea, Ethiopia. Um, and, uh, she, her brother, the sultan, uh, started a war with the Christian Empire of Ethiopia and died three days later. So we have Gaewa, the, uh, sister of the sultan, assuming the throne by saying she's now the regent regent for um, her uh, nephew, and she stays on that throne and fights a war against the Christian ruler of Ethiopia for some 30 years. Eventually, even allies herself with the Ottoman emperor, who sends out his own uh, ambassadors to meet her. So you do have amazing stories, uh, which also in research have not been very much looked at.
0: Definitely wonderful material and and to work with. Um, unfortunately, we will have to take a short break, but we'll be back in a moment with the conclusion of the show. This is Christopher Mackey and uh, we've been very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Verena France, and um, having a very interesting uh, discussion on Ethiopia in the Middle Ages. And uh, before we conclude our show, um, my final question to you um, would be about um, what is Ethiopia's place in the discipline of medieval studies? Uh, does it have a place?
1: Well, I would say at the moment it doesn't really have a place, but then again, I mean, I can't help but looking at my research and think, huh, oh, you know, these contemporaries that I studied in the 15th century, they were obviously not crossing any continental borders into, from Africa into Europe. They perceived very much, uh, all of that as one broader realm, um, and very happy to, Ethiopian monks were very happy to look at, uh, pilgrimage sites in northern Spain, uh, or north of the Alps in Constance. Um, so I do think that excluding, um, Ethiopia from the field of Ethi- uh, medieval studies based on a conception of the world divided into continents that is very much more part of, let's say, uh, modern times, um, doesn't really hold true. So, um, and of course, also, if you take into account how important this, uh, search for Prestigeon was for medieval European history, how much it prompted, I think, also the European expansion, uh, how much it prompted Portuguese se- uh, seafarers to go out and eventually circumnavigate Ath- uh, Africa, then, uh, I mean, if we see that uh, in the contemporary European perception of the world this was uh, the Ethiopian uh, Ethiopian empire then of course it should be included um, because uh, yeah most of these borders we think we have in our um, we find uh, disciplinary borders uh, and geographical borders really um, do not get mirrored in uh, in the sources that I've studied.
0: Linguistic borders, for that matter, as well.
1: Linguistic borders, for that matter, as well. Yes.
0: Well, um, I, I I definitely share your opinion on this matter. And uh, uh, what kind of can I say except that I, I look forward to hearing uh, um, more from you about Ethiopia and more about your research in the future. Um,
1: thank you very much.
0: <laughs> thank you very much, Doctor. An pleasure having you on. And for our listeners back home, as always, uh, be sure to tune in uh, to us. You can visit our website at medievalradio.org. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, we'd be more than happy to um, to hear what you have to say. Or send us an email to medievalradio at ceu.hu. And be sure to like us on Facebook as well. From all of us here at CEU Radio, We thank you very much for listening. Take care, and goodbye.